0: To Matthew chapter 22 so if you want to go ahead and start turning to Matthew uh, 22 um, go ahead and start moving in that direction but as we as we end here let us end where we began thinking about what the purpose of the law is the purpose of the law is that it's a tool It's a tool given to us by God. But what is it a tool for? It's a tool to show us what God's holiness looks like. It's a tool to set the standard for us so that we know what God's standard for holiness is in our lives and also for us to see that we will never meet that standard. We've been seeing that for the past Ten weeks that no one can meet the standard, even the standard that seems as simple as the standard laid out here in the Ten Commandments. But it's also important for us to remember that it is a tool to show us these things, to show us our holiness, to show us our need for God. But it is not a tool by which we can achieve our own salvation. It's not a tool by which if we follow every jot and tittle of the law, we will find ourselves in God's presence. First, because as stated, that's not possible. But also because our salvation rests not on what we do, but on what God has done for us. The the second verse of chapter 20 of Exodus right before God gets into the Ten Commandments, is this, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. See, before God ever gives the law to the people, He has already saved them. He has already redeemed them. He has already brought them out of slavery. Not because they did anything to deserve it, but because God chose them. They were God's people and then God heard them cry in their suffering and he redeemed them and brought them out of Egypt. Not because of anything they had done. Not even because they cried out, but because he had chosen them first. They were his people and he was their God. I hope as we've looked at the Ten Commandments, we've we've seen these things at play here. We've we've seen a standard of our holiness that us as believers can begin to hold ourselves accountable to, that we can begin through God's, God's help and God's grace to rise to, but also have seen our incredible and powerful need for him. You know, this This relationship between law and grace, between Old Testament and New Testament, is something that we have a hard time getting our brains around sometimes. And so we're we're left with this question, the question that we often have. What is the role of the law in the Christian's life? There are some recently who have talked about unhitching the Old Testament from the New. We don't need the Old Testament. We only need the New Testament. That is an ancient heresy called Marcionism. The Old Testament is there. It's part of Scripture. It's God's word for us. But what is our relationship to it? What does Jesus say about the law? Specifically, today we're going to look and see what Jesus says the greatest Commandment is. So we are in Matthew chapter 22. We're going to be starting with verse 34. Will you stand with me as we read God's word together? When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together. And one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? And he, Jesus, said to him, The expert in the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. This is the word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let's pray. Dear gracious God, as we turn to your word this morning, as we turn to the words of the Son, as we look at this greatest commandment, God, I pray that we would see the truth of your word, that we would see the truth of what love is, that we would see the truth of what it is to serve you. God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts are acceptable, acceptable. And pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. Maybe may be seated. This is an interesting exchange that Jesus has with this expert of the law. Um, this exchange, or an exchange like this, shows up in three of the Gospels. It shows up in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke. Now, these are the Gospels that we have a big fancy word for these Gospels. We call them the Synoptic Gospels. I'll be honest, I don't know what the word Synoptic means. I know that it means these three books. And these three, if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll see that there's a lot of overlap in how they tell the story of Jesus and how they tell the gospel. John is different. When you read John, it is very different. It's not contradictory. It's just different. Now, we got to remember, John is writing his gospel later than the others. He's writing to a different community. In fact, John is beginning to write, to write against some of these heresies that are beginning to come out. And so John's purpose in writing is a little different. And that's, we can tell the same story but have different purposes and so tell it a little differently, right? I can tell you a story and I can tell you to make you laugh and I'll tell it one way. And I can tell you the exact same story to give you information or perhaps even to, in gender sympathy from you, and I'm going to tell it differently. But it's the same story, right, with the same facts underneath. So it shouldn't surprise us then that we see this exchange or an exchange like this in the three Gospels, but not in John. And in Matthew and in Mark, we actually see it in the same place. And by that, I mean this exchange is, it's here in this exchange that Jesus has during the Passion Week with some of his opposition. We, we, we see it in this, as part of this um, exchange, this sort of triple exchange between Jesus and the detractors. If you were to flip back a little bit in chapter uh, 22, you would see the first of these exchanges in verse, starting in verse 15. This is the first time the Pharisees come to Jesus. They come to him and they ask him a question about God and Caesar. They're trying to, to get, trip Jesus up. They're trying to either show that he will blasphemy against God or he'll commit treason against Caesar. Either way, they can deal with him. Spoiler alert, doesn't work. The next exchange is with his other group, the Sadducees. And we're going to talk in just a second about Sadducees and Pharisees, but there's a second group of religious leaders called the Sadducees and they come and they ask Jesus um, this question uh, about resurrection. Trying to trip Jesus up. And he doesn't. And in fact, he, he silences them. And then the Pharisees, having seen that he was able to so handily deal with their opponents, the, the Sadducees, they come back to him one more time to test him. And they test him with this with this question, "What is the greatest commandment?" This is actually, interestingly, uh, this is the last question of of testing of Jesus brought to Jesus in Matthew and Mark. So, in Matthew and Mark, we see it as part of this exchange. In Luke, it's in a different place. In Luke, it's earlier in Jesus's ministry where someone asks Jesus this question, and it's actually the lead-in to the parable of the Good Samaritan, because Jesus talks about loving neighbor, and then the man responds, well, who is my neighbor? Again, trying to trip Jesus up. Now, let's, I want to take a quick side note here about this. This is one of those times where there are people who will look to this and say, ah, see, here's a contradiction. Matthew and Mark have this exchange, this time in Jesus' ministry, and Luke has it somewhere else. This proves that the Gospels are fabricated, made up, unreliable. We don't know what they they don't know what they're talking about. It's all a bunch of hooey. Anyone ever heard anybody make an argument like that? Maybe not about this particular text, but something similar? Now, let me ask you a question. If Jesus is teaching regularly, would it make sense that he might teach the same thing more than once? This is not a rhetorical question. I mean, how many times, right? How many times have you heard me say, I don't know, this is the Word of God? Read it, believe it, and live it. You hear me say it every week, right? Now, here's the thing I'm not just saying those words. That's teaching. I'm trying to teach you something. I'm trying to teach you that you need to read it, that you need to believe it, that you need to live it. If Jesus is teaching, now I want to be very clear I am not Jesus and I'm not trying to put myself in his category, but a teacher who is teaching something is going to teach the same things over and over again. So it would make perfect sense for some earlier time in Jesus's ministry, for a Pharisee, a person who is very concerned about the law of God, to come to this teacher and ask him about the law and which is the greatest command. And for Jesus to respond earlier in his ministry the same way he responds at the end of his ministry. I bring this point up because I think sometimes we can get overly concerned about this because it feels like that it's a serious objection, but it's not. If we just stop and put on our thinking caps, we can see that it makes perfect sense for Jesus to have said something like this more than once. You do realize that not every word of Jesus is recorded in Scripture, right? Right? Not everything that Jesus did is recorded in Scripture. In fact, Scripture tells us there were many other things that he said and he did that are not recorded here. One of the things that's interesting in these three versions, we see three different responses, too. In Luke, we get this, this, this use of the law for self-justification. Well, who exactly is my neighbor then? I mean, what's the point of that question? I don't want to do what you just asked me to do. So I'm going to try and draw the circle of neighbor as small and as narrowly as I can, trying to self-justify with the law. In Mark, we get what actually seems like a pretty good response from the from the teacher of the law, from the, from the lawyer. He actually says to Jesus, he actually says, teacher, what you've said makes perfect sense and it's good. And Jesus's response to him is very interesting. Jesus's response tells him you are not far from the kingdom but he's not in the kingdom so it's not a it's not the right response it seems like a good response but it's not there and of course he was still trying to test jesus and then here in matthew we see how they have used the law to try and trap jesus and we see them that they leave after this, knowing that they cannot trap him, I just want to be very clear: the use of the law to try and trap Jesus is not an approved use of the law. You, you know, you, you ever you ever like get get buy something and it says, you know, do not do this with this object. Um, you, you get something that comes in a plastic bag and it has to tell you this plastic bag is not a toy, which I did not understand until I had a toddler why that is on plastic bags. So if the law came with a warning label, it would, one of the warning labels with not an approved use to tempt and test the Son of God. It's not one of the reasons that God gave us the law. So this is the the context. This is the setup for where we are. And so we see this Right here in verse 34, as we start in 34, we see the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees. You've got these these two groups, and then there are more than two sort of big groupings uh, of Jews at the time of Jesus, but the two biggest were the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These were the two who had the most influence, the most power. They're the two groups we see in Acts that sit on the Sanhedrin. We also... Uh, that they believed differently. The Sadducees, very interestingly, the Sadducees had a a faith that was very non-supernatural. They did not believe in the resurrection of the body. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe, really, in the Spirit of God. Now, the Pharisees believed all of those things. They believed in the resurrection of the dead. They believed in angels. They believed in the Spirit of God. In fact, if there was a group... In the first century, a Jewish group that Jesus was the closest to theologically, it would be the Pharisees. We can almost talk about the the argument back and forth between Jesus and the Pharisees as a sort of family argument. They're kind of coming from the same way of thinking about things. You know, the Pharisees are a group of people, they want to take the word of God seriously. They want to take the law seriously. They think it's important We've got these, these two groups. We love that, right? We love it when our opponents are silenced by someone. Look at how we talk about politics sometimes. We do this assumption, right, that if somebody has silenced the other side, whichever side that is for you, someone has silenced the other, well, that must mean that they're on our side. We love it. We have, We have... Whole systems of political commentary these days based around owning the other side. Are you all familiar with this term owning? Making them look foolish. We're going to own the libs. We're going to own the cons. It's kind of what the Pharisees are doing here. We're like, oh man, Jesus just owned the Sadducees. But we still don't like him. Let's see if we can trap him again. And so they sin this teacher of the law, this expert in the law. Sometimes you'll see this word translated as lawyer. It actually is the word for lawyer, but we have a tendency of thinking of lawyer as somebody what you who know, goes to court. That's not necessarily what's happening here. That's not necessarily what this man does. He's, an, he's a scholar of the law. And he comes, and he starts out so sweet, right? Teacher. It's a sign of respect, right? I mean, in Aramaic, it would be "Rabbonoi," Rabbi, teacher. Now, here's the thing: there's a little bit of snark here, because this guy is not one of Jesus's disciples. He's not one of the people who sees Jesus as a legitimate teacher. He's being a little, a little snarky. It's, a, it's an outward sign of respect that's betraying an an inward lack of respect. It's important for us to remember that these outward signs of respect that people have sometimes aren't always what they're cracked up to be. And then he asks this question. He says, what is the greatest command in the law? What is the greatest? Now, it's important to note that that the Pharisees at this point, and and the Pharisees are sort of proto-Rabbinical Jews, So what we think of as Judaism today doesn't really exist until after the year 70 when the temple is destroyed and folks can no longer sacrifice in the temple. And they have to sort of figure out what it means to be a Jew, what it means to be a follower of of Yahweh without a temple in which to sacrifice. And the the school that sort of wins out is the school that comes out of the Pharisees and becomes what we now know as rabbinical Judaism. And so at this point, they've been studying the law. They've been interested in the law, and they've sort of broken the law up into two categories. There's the weighty laws and the lighter laws. Now, interestingly, and they're not saying that the lighter laws are are lesser, really, but kind of. But what they've done is they've begun to fall into that same trap that human beings have been falling into since the garden. We're going to put ourselves in the place of God and make decisions about what is and isn't weighty, about what is and isn't right and wrong, about what we've got to be concerned about instead of listening to God. And, and so it's in that sort of context that he uses this word, the greatest. What's the summary? What's the, what's the greatest of the law? The, the, this group, this school of thought, was very interested in this. And in fact, in the, some of the earliest rabbinical writings we have, which are going to be after the time of Jesus, but sort of coming out of this same way of thinking, some of the earliest um, rabbinical writings we have talks about um, summaries of the law that we can find in various places. They point to different places in the Psalms, in Isaiah, in Micah, in Abus, in Habakkuk. They point to all of these places as summaries of the law. They're very concerned about this. I want to note, though, that all of these places they point to aren't in the law itself. They're summaries of the law, most of which are found in the prophets. The one in the Psalms, of course, found in the writings. So, so what he's done is he's come and he's started this conversation. And this conversation is geared in one direction. This conversation is geared to get Jesus to say anything because anything that jesus says here is a losing statement it's it's the exact same thing they thought they were doing when they asked him about taxes and caesar and god just a few minutes earlier they think that no matter how jesus responds to this it's going to be a loser they probably think that he's going to to speak to one of the 10 commandments he's going to take one of the 10 and lift it up But they think that no matter how he responds, they're going to be able to find a way to prove that he's wrong and show that he is not who he says he is. And so, how does Jesus respond? Jesus, interestingly, he doesn't go to the prophets, he doesn't go to the writings, he goes back to Torah, he goes back to the law, and he says, He said to him, love the Lord your God with your heart, with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. Not too long ago, we actually looked at this little passage of Scripture that Jesus is quoting here. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6. This is what's known as the Shema which is the word that means look which is how it start the passage starts in Deuteronomy or listen excuse me not listen not look listen thank you i don't know what it says that my wife knows hebrew better than i do but anyway but it's the shema i mean this is this is something that every practicing jew is going to know by rote because they say it they recite it twice a day so Jesus is pointing, he's saying, he's saying, look, this is not, the answer to your question is not some arcane piece of knowledge that you have no access to. It's this thing that you say every day as part of your prayers. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Deuteronomy, it says all your strength. Here in Matthew, he says mind. In Mark, he actually says, "Mind and strength." It's interesting that there is this variation here. What Jesus is quoting is Jesus is quoting the, the version of this we find in Deuteronomy in what we call the Septuagint. This is the Greek translation of the Hebrew text. It's uh, most of the Greek, most of the New Testament written in Greek, most of the Old Testament written originally in Hebrew. But most of the New Testament, when it quotes the Old Testament, doesn't translate, freshly translate the Hebrew into the Greek. It's quoting this translation that was done in the first century B.C. in Alexandria, Egypt, called the Septuagint. So Jesus isn't quoting it exactly, right? He adds mind here. And whether we have it as it is in Matthew or whether we have it in Mark, we know that Jesus adds mind, something that's not in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. Jesus is emphasizing is emphasizing that we must learn to think critically and biblically. And this love of God is not free of our mind, but dependent on it. So he says this is the greatest command, and then he, he says the second is like it, and he quotes scripture again, he quotes from Leviticus, and he says, love your neighbor as yourself, all of the law hangs on these two things it's, that phrase the second is like it is interesting it's it's very similar to a phrase we see in scripture in the new testament over and over again but normally it's when jesus is introducing a parable and he says the kingdom of god is like it's the same word there now in english right it's the same word and and like can mean different things but but it's that introduction of this comparison that's unique to the word in Greek, and so it's that same word. And so, so he's saying it, it, it's the, the first one is like the second one, just like the kingdom of God is like a man who goes into a field. It's, it's two sides of the same coin. You can't understand one without the other. You cannot understand how to love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, unless you know how to love your neighbor. And you cannot know how to love your neighbor as yourself, unless you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. They are so interconnected. They are so intertwined, Jesus is telling us. You cannot have one without the other. He says all of the law and the prophets hang on this. There are three divisions of Scripture in the Hebrew Bible. There is the law, there is the prophets, and there is the writings. Now, for us, when we think of prophets, we think of Isaiah, Jeremiah. We don't think of first and second Samuel and first and second Kings, but those are included in the prophets, in Hebrew Scripture. What Jesus is saying when he says all of the law and all of the prophets, this is a phrase that meant all of Scripture. All of God's word hangs on these two ideas, that you are commanded to love God with absolutely everything you have. And you are to love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, there's always that question, right? Who is our neighbor? Jesus has shown over and over again. He shows us in the story of the Good Samaritan. He shows us earlier in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, that our neighbor is everyone. There's there are no people who aren't our neighbor. We love to do that, right? Like we want to we want to draw the line really close. We want to be like, well, well, he's my neighbor. Mr. Dave is my neighbor. He's really easy to love. He's my neighbor. But man, Mr. Wayne, he lives outside of town. He's not as easy to love. He's not my neighbor. Or sometimes we do the opposite, right? We we really like the abstract. Everybody is my neighbor, but is my next-door neighbor who I really can't stand, who I've had a fight with over the fence line for 40 years, are they really my neighbor? Do I really have to love them? But God says over and over and over again in Scripture, your neighbor is everybody. We've, We've got these two commands here these two commands that so clearly and succinctly sum up all of the law, all of the prophets, not just the Ten Commandments that we've been looking at, not just the the first and second table of the law, but everything that God has given us. And we are stuck again with this idea that they are so intertwined with one another that we cannot separate them. I think sometimes we think that we can love God and not our neighbor first john tells us that if we say that we're liars i think we also have this thing in the world today where we think we can love our neighbors without loving god well i'm a good person i i volunteer at the soup kitchen i i take food to my neighbors i don't need god to to be a good person and to love my neighbors Jesus is telling us you cannot love your neighbors the way you are supposed to without first loving God. They're so interconnected. They are totally dependent on one another. Now, we've got this whole problem of love, and we could spend the next 80 or 90 minutes breaking apart love And what biblical love is versus what love in the world is. But I'll say this the world wants us to think of love as a feeling, but it's more than a feeling. It is, it's a command. God commands us to love Him, He commands us to love our neighbor. God's commanding relationship from you. He's commanding relationship with him and he's commanding relationship with each other. The the vertical relationship, us to God, and the horizontal relationship, us to our neighbor, God commands it. And this is where that Pharisee who responds in Mark, who says that Jesus has got it right, and Jesus is right. This is why Jesus tells him, you're close, but no cigar. You're close, but no kingdom for you. Because he didn't have the relationship. He had the knowledge and not the heart. He had the brain, and the brain is important, right? Jesus adds mind. The brain is important, but the heart is important too. This is, this is what it is. To live out the Ten Commandments. It's to be in relationship with God, to love Him, or attempt to love Him, with every fiber of our being. Because here's the thing, guess what? Just like we can't live into the Ten Commandments, we can't live into the greatest either. Not on our own, not apart from God. We, we, We attempt to love Him with everything we have and we attempt to love our neighbor we have relationship this is the greatest commandment and all of the law and the prophets hang on it now I'm going to say something this might be the closest I have ever come to getting myself in trouble which is saying something you may not like this and that is fine We can disagree here. I think this is a place that is perfectly fine for us to disagree on. This is why I don't care about whether or not the Ten Commandments are hung up in the courtroom. This is why I don't care whether or not the Ten Commandments are on the lawn at the Alabama State House. Because the Ten Commandments, apart from relationship with the living God, the Ten Commandments, apart from God, Choosing you, electing you into relationship with him means nothing. They're empty words. They're a standard that we cannot fulfill. Now, are they good ideas? Sure. But we, we wrap ourselves up about these, these cultural fights without having the conversation with the person on the other side do you believe that Jesus is Lord because if you don't believe Jesus is Lord that's the conversation we need to have not about whether or not you want the Ten Commandments on the lawn because until we get on the same page about whether or not Jesus is Lord whether or not he's God's son who came lived a perfect life died a substitutionary death was buried rose again for the forgiveness of our sins until that is worked out nothing else matters Because it's only through that that we can have that relationship that makes these commandments possible. So, you can disagree with me. You can tell me that I'm wrong and the Ten Commandments should be everywhere. We'll disagree on it. But I hope that what we do agree on is loving the Lord our God with all of our heart with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength, and loving our neighbors as ourselves. This church is what and who we are called to do and to be. And everything, everything is dependent on these two things. Our hymn of invitation this morning is set